Welcome to the Healing Trauma Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Monique Coven. I'm the host. I'm a certified trauma recovery coach. I've worked for over 25 years as a social worker, and I'm a survivor. The Trauma Healing Podcast is for those who are healing trauma and finding ways to navigate through this messy, uncomfortable, and challenging recovery process. The intent of the podcast is to provide helpful information to validate, inspire you, support you on your healing recovery journey. You're going to hear stories from other survivors, trauma experts, and trauma therapists in the field that will provide information on effective trauma healing modalities, tools, techniques, skills, all in hopes of helping you heal. If you'd like to find out more information on trauma recovery healing, please go to my website at www.cptsdcoach.com. I also have an Instagram and Facebook page at cptsdcoach. Welcome back, everyone. I am so excited to share today's episode with you. Rebecca Ladine is our guest today, and she is a somatic therapist and researcher. She's the author of The Mind-Body Stress Reset, Somatic Practices to Reduce Overwhelm and Increase Well-Being. I read her book when it first came out, and I connected with her and was so excited that she is having this conversation with us because Rebecca has so much knowledge and scientifically based research on on ways that we can show our body how to become more regulated. Uh, I love one of the things she says is that stress is not just in the mind, but it's in the body too. And don't we know that? (laughs) And so this conversation is all about that. We're going to be talking about extreme stress, responses, what helps, and what sometimes we think should help, but in practice we find sometimes doesn't really help. And why is that? Rebecca's going to talk about that and more. Good morning, Rebecca. How are you? Good morning, Monique. I am well. It's great to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I'm so excited about talking to you. I have read your book and I loved it. Uh, I just found it so relatable. And there's just, there's, there's so much helpful information. There's so many answers to why that many of us have with complex trauma. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, there's, there's so much hope. So mm-hmm. thank you, first of all, for, for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom and your experience. And I'm looking forward to, uh, to chatting. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate your support of the book. And I like that you're saying it's relatable. That was a very important focus for me. It's written in a lighthearted tone. It's written for the general public. It's not heady. It's not dark. Even though we're talking about trauma and extreme stress, it's 
it's really meant to be uplifting. And like you say, hopeful, that's really what it's about. So I'm glad that it had that effect on you. It left that impression with you. That's wonderful. Yes, it totally did. You could, you could feel it as you're reading it, um, which is so lovely and so sometimes different from other, other books that, um, that you read. So, well, let me just ask you, why did you decide to write this book? Yes. So this book was a labor of love and the drive to get this work out there to as many people as possible. So I write about in the book and I'm open about the fact that I went through my own incredible crisis and was caught very much by surprise by it. I had had difficult times before this crisis period, but for the previous decade, I had been doing pretty well. And then a perfect storm of stresses hit my life and I was really without a lifeboat, without a raft. I didn't, I didn't know how to keep going. Went looking and looking and looking and found under a lot of stones, I think you could say, this work that really helped in a way that nothing else did. And the cornerstone of the work was accessing the body and mind. And I knew that the work had been um, celebrated, you could say, earned respect in therapy circles, but it wasn't something that was very widely known outside of the therapeutic setting to my knowledge at that time. So I really wanted to bring it to people who can't afford weekly therapy for a couple of years or more. I wanted to let folks know that there were these body-mind tools that were so effective in ways that other tools that were and are being offered and suggested aren't effective in the case of trauma. And I think the other thing that's so important to name is that I I wanted to find something that could be self-administered. So somatic experiencing or somatic therapy had been shown to be incredibly effective. We knew it. It was certain, yes, this is a great therapeutic approach for trauma and extreme stress. But was there something that folks could give themselves or guide themselves through? And I was in grad school when I started asking that question and developed a protocol that I tested with a group of study participants and you know, conducted absolutely rock-solid scientific study overseen by great supervisors that showed really impressive results. And what I decided to do was develop somatic experiencing and mind-body medicine modalities into a simple series of tools that the study participants could learn. They were taught by me in a course and could then self-administer each week between classes and really asked the question, did these folks benefit from guiding themselves with just a little bit of tutoring, you could say, from a knowledgeable professional? And it was a resounding yes. It was 97% effective. And the results were so promising that I knew then I really want to 
disseminate this as far and wide as possible. So I took this many, many page, very academic thesis that I had written and turned it into a completely non-academic, not serious, not not dry, I hope not boring, I hope book for anyone to pick up and read and be able to get through pretty easily. And like you said, feel feel like they can relate to it. There's just so much I love right there um, because trauma survivors are so desperate to to get a little bit of um, peace or regulation into their bodies, into their systems after being shaped towards so much hypervigilance and self-protection. And, you know, I mean, you know uh, that therapies in the past were really focused on sort of the 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 cognitive, um, rational kind of reframing, it's over in a nice way, kind of saying it's over, but meaning, mm-hmm. you know, let's, let's think differently. And just knowing that that doesn't work in the desperation of, of like, but I still feel like it's happening now. And to know that you, um, have, uh, tested and found and now want to share these, these accessible tools that people can, can just practice on their own to start to feel in their bodies a sense of more more peace, more connection, more regulation is is just so it's just so wonderful and it's really the it just is the reason why I started the podcast because there's just so much of like not knowing what's going on and please help and and yes. and, and so I'm so so glad to to, to hear that you, this is this is also your passion mm-hmm. um so uh, do you mind if you I remember reading in your book and I was I think that this will be interesting for this for the listeners to hear is that you talk about how you noticed that some of the some of the um approaches to the body were not so helpful for people who have had extreme stress, trauma in their background, developmental trauma. Mm -hmm. And could you talk a bit about that from your perspective, your experience? Absolutely. Yes. I wanted um, originally to call the book, It's Not All in Your Head, It's in Mm. Your Body Too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's exactly what you were just saying, that cognitive reframing can work in events that are on a scale of one to 10, a 4.5 or less. <laughs> but the research shows that when you start to get into five plus stress events or five plus trauma history, that isn't effective. And what can happen is the person can end up saying a lot, I know it in my mind. I, I get that mentally or cognitively it's over or I'm okay now but my body isn't at all convinced. And there are a lot of modalities that bring us into cognitive reframing or mental distancing that won't help us when we're experiencing five and up stress and trauma. And there's also the likelihood that if we're going deeply into the cognitive memory narrative um, description, we are going to do what I call submerge ourselves in our trauma memory, in our stress memory. And those kinds of modalities are particularly risky for folks that have 
extreme stress currently in their lives, in their past, and definitely for folks with trauma history. So what I lived myself after having been a meditation teacher for more than a decade during this incredibly stressful and difficult time in my own life, each time I sat down to meditate, I was feeling more activated, more agitated, more hypervigilant, heart racing, body fidgety, feeling that my intrusive thoughts were louder, stronger, more compelling. And I didn't understand why. So I really started to look at the literature on this and the indications were really clear. If we subject ourselves to sitting still, eyes closed, being with what's happening, a common meditation instruction is just witnessing the thoughts like clouds in the sky. And let me say that's a beautiful intention if we're at a 4.5 stress level or below. What a great idea. Don't get caught up. Let them go by. You're okay. But when the clouds, so to speak, are not just grabbing your mental attention, but really are physically grabbing you and you tell yourself, just stay here, keep watching this, keep feeling this, it will pass. We can put ourselves in harm's way. We can amplify our own experience of stress. We can basically reenact and relive our trauma. For most of us who have lived through trauma, being stuck in that situation was paramount, was, was a central figure in what happened. And so if you imagine being stuck, so to speak, on a meditation cushion and requiring yourself to stay there in the same way that your circumstances required you to stay there when you were younger, littler, or just plain before, you're reliving the same helplessness. You're reliving the same inability to engage in your own choices and self-efficacy and agency and get up and do something different. So as simple as requiring yourself to stay while you feel totally activated and anxious or totally dissociated and numb, that in and of itself just guys, don't do that to yourselves. <laughs> don't override your impulse to change what you're doing. If your body is calling out to you, please change. And the other thing that's important to name is this, the flooding that can happen. You know, intrusive images are extremely common in with traumatic histories and extreme stress. And you're meditating or you're talk therapying, as I say, and you're, let's say you're meditating and intrusive images are coming in and you're just watching them and watching them and not enabling yourself to respond to them differently. But, but like I said, feeling incapacitated, even if your cognitive self says, nope, I'm okay. I can just be here and witness this. If the intrusive images are activating your system and increasing and intensifying, it's likely that part of you is feeling pretty incapacitated by them. And they're becoming more powerful, so to speak, than the regulated part of yourself that believes you're okay. And when that scale tips and you're 
flooded by memories, flooded by sensations of things that weren't okay then and now feel not okay now, we go into the part of our brain that doesn't have any sense of time. So we're no longer our 48-year-old self, our 35-year-old self, our 57-year-old self sitting on a meditation cushion or sitting on a couch talking through our history. We are the person we were when it happened originally. We are back in that mental frame and physical frame, reliving and in a, in a very sincere way, re-traumatizing ourselves. So when your body is saying to you, this feels like too much. This feels scary. This feels like something I don't want to be stuck in. This feels like not the right thing for me right now. I really implore you to listen. I really encourage you to do what you feel called to do in those moments, to take the action now that you might not have been able to take then and make now different than before. So I want to say I really respect both of those modalities. Meditation, talk therapy, they can be incredible. I don't want to throw them under the bus. I don't want to discount their amazing efficacy and help to lots of folks. I just want to say when there's body imprints, somatic memory involved, and your body starts talking to you during those particular activities and similar activities that can involve override and flooding, I really encourage you to listen. And if you want more information about that, there's a lot more information about it in the book. That was such a great explanation. And uh, I could, I could totally, as you're speaking, I could totally just almost feel it like, as you were saying, so I was picturing sitting there and yeah, um, I could just imagine that, that when you are sitting there and forcing yourself, because that's what you're quote unquote supposed to do, um, Mm -hmm. it is just sort of keeping you in that stuck feeling like I can't get out place, which is just kind of, um, keeping that memory, um, even more alive and in the memory place instead of, um, you know, experiencing something different where you could get up and get away. So, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I've had a lot of folks that don't want to let go of their meditation practice. It has other benefits for them. And so I've said, great, if you're called to do it and your body's saying yes to it in many ways, maybe just alter it a little bit. Maybe just respond when when the message comes, I want to get up. Mm. Maybe just get up and then do a walking meditation or do a standing on the balcony meditation or, or just take a break. That was, you know, a little one for the day, a short one for the day, as Lama Surya Das calls them shorties. You know, they don't all have to be longies, he says. I love his accent. I hope you all know that I, I, I do that because I come from a long line of New Yorkers. So, um, <laughs> but you, you know, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing, but I want to say for folks that feel like, you know what, it's just not my practice right now. That's okay. That is totally okay. And you can listen to that. That's so great. Yeah. I've had even people tell me sort of, they figure out on their own that, "Mm, you know, uh, I don't feel like, I think I have to put away my meditation for a while and that's their body. You know, they're listening to their body, which I think is great, you know, and they say they'll come back to it at another time or, yeah. So thank you for that. Uh, another thing I was hoping you could elaborate a bit on is 
So how might trauma affect our experience of, let's say, normal stress? Yes. So I did allude to it just a little bit in that previous answer, but it's really important. So let's unpack it a little bit more. Our trauma brain slash stress brain is different than our frontal brain slash relational brain slash regulated brain slash rational and also time sensing brain. So when we're in trauma brain, stress brain, we're not with time. We're we're in the now. And if, if the trauma brain, stress brain is awakened, the bad things that have happened are all right now. The other thing is that the ability to think through them clearly and problem solve them has turned off. It's like a light switch, really. It's like, okay, light switch goes off on the relational, rational, time-aware brain, and it turns on on the reactive, fear-based. All the, all the scary things are here in this moment, part of our brain. And so when we are in normal stress for a non-trauma sensitive system, for a non-extreme stress sensitive system, that normal stress for a non-extreme stress sensitive system is like, okay, so yep, got a little tense, felt a little agitated or a little scared, you know, moved into a little bit of reactivity and came back. Okay, Mm -hmm. moving on with the day. In a trauma brain, stress brain sensitive person, even normal stress can send that brain involuntarily into pretty pronounced reactivity. And in the book, what I talk about is that if if you're a person who's been triggered regularly, it's not even that your life has a certain level of stress that objectively everyone would say, oh, wow, they've been through so much. It's just if you've been in circumstances that have fooled your stress brain, really, that have led you to believe, you know what, this, your stress brain goes, this looks pretty similar. It's constantly, stress brain's constantly scanning for that same thing that happened before. Is that happening now? Because I really don't want to relive it. So I want to be on the lookout for it and watch out and always avoid it, like as one example. And so the vigilance for that kind of stress, that kind of fear, that kind of threat, that kind of neglect is so high that our brain is fooled into thinking it is there when it's not. Mm -hmm. And what can happen is that can reset our baseline. Instead of a baseline that goes back down to humming along at a level two or three of stress, which is just kind of basic engagement, you know, we always have some activation or kind of awakeness going on in us when we're living our day, when we're not literally asleep, it can set our regular awakeness to like a seven or eight or nine. And on a scale of one to 10, that doesn't leave almost any room for when stress actually comes knocking, real extreme stress comes knocking. So it can, to sum that up, it can reset our baseline. It can get us stuck in fear reactivity and hypervigilance that has us scanning for anything similar to what happened before and convince us that it's happening now, also called confirmation bias, where we're looking for that thing. Where is it? Where is it? Ah, there it is. I see it. I know I see it. 
And it can get us trapped in a timeless space where we can't differentiate then from now. And we feel like what was happening before is happening today. All of those things being really painful and really dysregulating. So those are some of the markers. If you listeners are experiencing those things, you might be spending more of your day than you need to or would like to in your stress brain, in your trauma brain. It's important to know. And I say that as a person who totally lived that for several years. It wasn't just like one month of my life. And and knowing it, oh, this is what's happening. That's what that is. For me, was the first step in recovering from it, in finding my resilience and building it and building it, which I'm still doing now. It's not like, oh, and now that's done. But learning how to pull myself back out of that part of my brain more often, more skillfully, more quickly. Mm, I love that. Yes, and I I agree. I think the beginning of when we understand that, okay, that's what's going on, that takes away a little bit of the the unknown and the fear of like feeling out of control. We feel a little bit of control because we understand what's happening. Um, So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So why are resilient pathways, you talk about resilience pathways in your book, um, why are they important in recovering from stress events? Yes. So important. Yay, resilience. Yay, pathways. (laughs) (laughs) So when we spend a great deal of time in our stress, in our trauma, in that part of our brain, we have what we could describe as really robust stress highways, really robust trauma pathways that our brains are very good at using, very good at finding, very good at turning to again and again in many, many circumstances, even when they're not necessary. It's important to remember, even when they're not necessary, our brain can be so good at turning to them, it just does. Mm -hmm. And the opposite of that is resilience Mm -hmm. pathway. The important thing to remember with extreme stress and trauma imprints is that they're not going to go away. We're not trying to get rid of them. It doesn't seem realistic to get rid of them. The work here is to become more and more able to bring ourselves back from them. And that's resilience. So something happens in our current day. It feels stressful. We get pulled into stress brain. That's okay. That happens. But we've developed resilience pathways that our brain also knows how to find because we practiced with the mind-body stress reset or with our somatic therapist or with our trauma coach. And we are more and more able to access, how do I come back from this stress reaction? How do I come back from this anxiety or shutdown or freeze? That's what our resilience pathways can give to us is the ability to come back. They are our ability to recover and get kind of back into today, back into okay or okay enough, as I talk about in the book, and back into a place where little by little, our resilience pathways are just as available to our brain as our stress pathways had been. And over time, perhaps even more available than our stress pathways had been so that the reactivity is so slight. It's just, like I said, for a a normal person, 
It doesn't have a history of extreme stress and trauma. It's just a little bit of stress that goes up and a little bit of stress that comes down. I think I want to share a little story here that I, a study that I write about in the book, which I learned about from Robert Sapolsky, Stanford professor, incredible researcher, author of many, many books. Um, In this study, there were a group of mice who had a history of extreme stress and trauma, dysregulated nervous systems, and a group who didn't. And both of these groups were administered shocks. I know it's not ideal, but it was important research. Little painful shocks, but not fatal, not not damaging in a certain part of their enclosure. And the group that did not have a history of extreme stress and trauma learned what part of the enclosure those shocks came from and how to navigate around that space, how not to get caught by that painful prick. The important thing for us to know is that the group that did have a history of extreme stress and trauma did not learn how to navigate around those areas of their enclosure. Their systems had normalized the experience of that kind of pain occurring because it had just occurred in so many different circumstances in their lives that they ended up just staying in the area where the shocks were administered and giving up on getting away from them. And I think resilience pathways are us not giving up. That's what is so important about them. We've got to build them. We have to repair them. We have to use them and not let ourselves stay in the places of our lives that continue to create little bits of shock or pain. So can you talk just a little bit about what you mean by building the resilience pathways? Are you talking about exercises? Are you, what, what are you talking about when you say that? Yeah. So that's what was so important. If, if you were a person who was in somatic therapy or in trauma coaching, you would be guided by your therapist or coach regularly about how to find your resilience pathways. And that was the big question of the mind-body stress reset is can folks teach their own nervous systems how to develop utilize and make familiar resilience pathways. And so in the book, there are four skills chapters. And within each skills chapter, there are many, many exercises that people can really do anywhere, anytime. They're short, they're simple, and the study really shows us and reflects they're effective. When we learn these simple ways of soothing our nervous system, our nervous system understands, oh, this is what regulation feels like after a period of dysregulation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one simple example of that is one of the tools is called seeing and sensing. So when we're in stress brain, when we're in trauma brain, we often move into tunnel vision and this confirmation bias where we stop seeing what's okay in our environment. We really focus in on what's not okay or what we imagine could not be okay, if you see what I mean. It doesn't have to be real. It can be imagined. Both of them affect the nervous system equally. 
And so in that place of what we could call faulty seeing or stress seeing, we're missing the ability, the opportunity really to see what's okay here. What's not as activating here? What's not as difficult about what's happening right now as that thing that is difficult? That simple practice done again and again over time, this isn't a one and done approach, but done again and again, widening our lens, Mm -hmm. seeing the, I call it the and also. It's Mm -hmm. like, yes, there's that, you know, stressful thing or difficult thing happening in one part of my environment, but all around that are these things that are degrees of okay, and maybe even degrees of pretty darn good or really good. And when we focus our attention on the and also, it's important that it's an also because we're not denying the stress things. We're not pretending or like you say, like cognitive shifting. We're saying, yeah, there's the stress thing happening. I get that. I totally see that. And what else is also here? widening that out, that builds resilience. Then when we see things that are a little more okay, also what that does is it also promotes a little bit, just a nudge toward regulation in our body. Because when we're in stress brain and we're in tunnel vision, our body starts to move into contraction or a freeze. Okay, so we're either into hyperactivation where we're kind of tense and the heart's starting to beat fast and we're ready to get up and go for fight, or we're starting to kind of numb out a little bit, pull back, get really still, hope nobody notices us, nothing comes right at us. Those states are a reenactment of trauma survival physiology, trauma survival strategies. And so if we can feel the parts of us that aren't being pulled into trauma survival, if we can feel the parts of us that aren't heart pounding, that aren't numbing out, we can take this and also into the body as well. And that's where we really get to reassure our nervous system, our stress brain, our trauma memories. That's where we really get to feel, oh, there are parts of me that are okay. I hadn't noticed because I had been in survival mode. There are parts of me that feel safe-ish or a little bit less unsafe than another part of me. We'll start with that if we need to. And that little bit of awareness on an okay enough part of us can really shift us toward resilience, can really help our trauma brain know, hey, I'm not under the kind of attack I thought I might be under. I feel I'm more okay than I, for a moment, felt I was. So those are just two examples from the book, and there are many more tools in there to work with, but those are some of the things we're doing to build resilience, to feel our way back to safe or safe enough right here, right now. Mm, Love that. Do you use these, or because you said that you've been through... Um, you know, your own experiences. Do you, do you use these yourself? Do you use them on a regular basis? Um, Tell us about that. Mm -hmm. Yes. I use them all the time. And I think I'm going to for the rest of my life. I don't think there will be a point where I don't need to remind my body about its capacity to recover from difficult stress events. What I will say is 
initially when I started this exploration into these tools, I tried them out on myself before I tried them out on the study participants. And I know for sure that my resilience pathways were much harder for me to find back then. The stress was loud. The trauma physiology was loud. And I would be able to find kind of like a little bit of silence between the notes, so to speak, as I talk about in the book, when, when I would use these tools. And now, this is many years later, the feeling is that the louder experience is my resilience. The more common experience is my resilience with periods of stress in between longer stretches of okayness or okay enoughness. So I would say, unfortunately, we're not given tools like this in elementary school. I think maybe the tides are starting to turn, actually, just as I say that, I think about my own kids and think, yeah, they were given some of these, actually. And I know that some programs are happening in schools around the country and the world. But I think it's not mm, spoken about enough as something that we need to do for ourselves in the same way that we need to take care of our teeth or exercise our muscles, we need to care for and strengthen our nervous system regulation capacities. We deserve it. And Mm -hmm. it's essential, I think, for all of us who want to live well and live with ease and live with the feeling of self-efficacy to be able to get through difficult things. Yeah. Yeah. That's, there will always be challenges. And so um, I just love this, the, the, the idea that we can, we can build those resilience pathways. Um, so hopeful. Mm-hmm. So Rebecca, I I joke with people that, you know, if I can do it, you guys can do it. (laughs) I was really dysregulated. (laughs) I mean it. So (laughs) I really think we can, we can do this. Let's do it. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. And uh, same here. And I've seen the difference Mm -hmm. with, with putting them into practice, what, (laughs) what a change that could be. Um, Just knowing that we can, that they're available is, is so helpful. Um, So. Rebecca, we're gonna we're coming to a close, and I was wondering if there's any last thing you want to say um, to our audience. I think I want to say um, I'm so glad that you're tuning in to a podcast like this and finding ways that you can help your system. I think it's such important work and it's such a valuable way to spend your time. And I really do think having books that are, you can read or listen to, having courses that are pre-recorded that you can pop onto, Monique and I are talking about putting one together, having access for all people, all folks, not just folks that have a lot of disposable income, to be quite honest, to seek out individual therapy. Um, I really mean it when I say we all deserve access to tools that will help us to feel okay most of the time. So I want to say good for you all for finding your way here. And I hope that 
some of this has been helpful for you today. And I really hope that you'll check out the book and that it helps you. In a funny way, I want to say something you can do if you find it helpful to help other people find it is to review it online. It's such a modern request, but in this online world, if you find the Mind Body Stress Reset book to be helpful for you, let other folks know about it so that they can find it too. And thanks for listening today. <laughs> oh, thank you for, for sharing. And, um, and like I said, that's what this podcast is about, is to put into people who have felt helpless, that there's no hope, to know that, okay, here are some things that can actually help. So thank you so much mm -hmm. for being here. Now, could you tell us again the name of the book and how people could reach mm -hmm. you if they'd like to find more information about you? Sure. So the name of the book is The Mind-Body Stress Reset, and you can find it wherever books are sold. And my website is RebeccaLadine.com. And my name has a bunch of funny spellings, but it'll be in the show notes, I'm sure. So you can find it there. And please feel free to reach out. I'm happy to help if I can. And Monique, I also want to say thank you so much for supporting the book, supporting this work. And congratulations on this podcast. I know it's doing great and I'm just so happy for you. And I think I want to say I'm thankful that you're putting this work out there into the world for more and more people to find it. We need that. We need more people like you doing this kind of work. So thank you. To find out more about my coaching offerings, you can... Mm -hmm. 